Hi, you're listening to Go See a Show, New York City's independent theater podcast. With the time it usually takes to put together a piece of theater, it can be hard for a work to really feel timely, especially when that piece involves puppets made specifically for the show. But serendipitously, with The Flatiron Hex, currently running at Here Art Center, it feels like co-creator and performer James Godwin could be reacting to recent extreme weather events. However, via an imaginative, noir-inspired story full of shadows, blood, and, yes indeed, beautifully created, intricate puppets. I sat down after a recent performance to chat with James. Take a listen. Did you design the, the, yes. the icon there? Yep. And it's it's here too. Yep. It's beautiful. Thanks. It's really cool. Thanks. When I saw you in the shirt, I was like, that's the key. Mm-hmm. And then I saw, like, wait, he's got ink too. That's great. Yeah, back in, um, what was it, June, uh, I had hit my fitness goals. I had been... Uh, back to the gym since January and my numbers were really good and I was like it it, it helped to motivate me and to re-anchor the whole thing and it's a symbol that I can always go like ah that's the that's the key that's really cool and that you designed yourself Mm -hmm. beautiful so I felt totally by accident that key was um, extra sculpting material that I was sculpting something else so I had extra and I was just Messing around completely. With it I swear to God, that's so. And cool. it was there were just these pieces laying around. And when we were putting the show together, I made the big thing of keys, and I was like, God, I don't have anything for the key key. What the hell? And I look over at this pile of extra pieces of stuff, and I was like, mm, That works. That's that the happened. thing. Yeah, it was weird. That's great. Yep. I'm gonna leave that in. Um, Please, I, do. Yeah. Please do. Please <laughs> do. Glad I already hit record. Um, <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. I have with me right now your name, sir, James Godwin. And what did you do on this show? I co-wrote. Uh, I designed and built the puppets, and I perform it, yes. So just about everything except directing and running your own tech, <laughs> yes. which is pretty great. Yes. Uh, it's, the show is The Flatiron Hex. We're at Here Art Center. Um, and how do you, when, you, when you tell people to come and see your show, what do, you, what do you tell them they're coming to see? That has always been a challenge because of the nature of the show. Uh, I've been working, I'm still working on the elevator pitch. Uh, I usually say that it's about a, a shaman who's kind of like a uh, an IT worker in a in a post-apocalyptic New York and he uh, screws up a very important mission and the city could be destroyed because of his mistake and then it's a it's a journey of his himself trying to redeem what happened uh, even though it wasn't it it's kind of his fault because he's overconfident and underprepared because he's been doing it for so long. And there's also forces that pushed him into doing it or pushed him into making the mistake that he makes. And conspicuously absent from that description <laughs> is I know, the, I the main thrust of like what it is you do, which is puppets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And which it's actually, I'm, and I don't say that as a, uh, as a knock against the show. I actually oh, say no, that no. It's, it's actually really interesting that the show itself is so interesting hmm. that in terms of script and what you, you're doing, like this idea mm-hmm. of this post-apocalyptic New York with the shaman and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a really great story. And then on top of that, there's this incredible theatricality going on uh, with it. So um, can, we, can you talk a little bit about your puppetry work? Because this is uh, the, the way you were able to do the whole show yourself is because you are performing all these other characters mm-hmm. uh, via your creations on stage what got you into puppetry and what uh, why tell this story in this way 
what got me into puppetry was um, back in the early 90s, I was doing what at the time, this would still be performance art in my estimation, uh, but it's obviously theater. For me, it's always kind of those boundaries are moot. Yeah, we, this is independent theater, man. Yeah. We don't care about that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back at the, in the 90s, late eight, I got here in 1988, and I wanted to be a performance artist because the scene was really hot. A lot of people were doing really interesting work. And so I started doing my own work. And I was a solo act, and I did lots of masks and weird props and stuff. And I was pastiching the men's movement and shamanism and ridiculing uh, pretty much the same themes that I'm doing in the show. <laughs> Uh, because I always I was a big fan of Joseph Campbell and he talked about how even the most sacred things should be able to be mocked because it makes them stronger the things that get stuck in ritualistic behavior and have no genuine uh, velocity to them are useless so if you're stuck in something you're just doing it by rote you don't feel it you don't get transformed so I was doing some of that I met some really great people who mentored me helped me I slowly did bigger rooms got better jobs uh, did more shows, uh, uh, and then I saw a, a Bill Baird show, which is, he's a puppeteer, was a puppeteer, and uh, he did a show off-Broadway, off kind of on Broadway, was on Theater Row, because uh, my roommate was stage managing it. So I went to go see the show, and it was marionettes, and I was like, oh yeah, I don't really like marionettes, but I watched the show. It was Alice in Wonderland, beautiful show. But I didn't know that afterward they did a variety show of different kinds of puppets. And in that variety show was a thing, these rope dancers. They looked like stick figures made out of really thick rope, like on a ship, you know, those big things of rope. Mm -hmm. And the woman had, like, coconuts for breasts and mop for hair. And they just danced to a, a, a I think it's a trog song. <laughs> they just danced. And I didn't know how they were doing it because it was in the dark. They were on black behind and you couldn't see anything about it. And it just it blew my mind totally. And I went backstage figuring that I was going to see this weird contraption and all this mechanics because I was used to seeing Jim Henson and all, you know, they had all these mechanics and stuff. It was just people moving rope with a, with a stick attached to it. There was nothing mechanical at all. It was just puppeteers who had wow. rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed so it looked so perfect. And then I went... Okay, and I had already built a few things that were kind of puppety. It was like a, it was a staff with a bird head on top that, that could talk, uh, but that kept breaking because I didn't know how to build it, and then I kept trying to rebuild it. And then I made, I figured, oh, if I did a puppet thing and took it around to the, there were a bunch of more performance spaces downtown then, and nobody was doing puppets. There weren't, there weren't any puppet slams that wasn't existing. If there was a puppet show, it was like a high high-class marionette show somewhere from another country or something of a very highbrow nature. So I started to do this puppet called Rudy, which is basically a plant in a planter. This was before <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> and, uh, it was a plant in a planter, and I made a, a, a light that could hang down. I wore all black suit with a black hood, black gloves. I had my own switches for lights, and I would go into these places that had no lights and say, just turn off the lights, and I would do my own lighting. So people would respond to it because this little thing looked like it was alive in this planter, and it was, he was basically just doing a stand-up act. So I started to do that. And it was your own stand-up, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, would, he, he was kind of like Borscht Belt, doing kind of stock, telling the story of how he got there. He's an alien abductee. He's in the belly of a galactic collection spaceship. He's, you know, he's kind of rough around the edges. <laughs> um, so I did that for a while, and then I joined up with my roommate and a few other people, and we had a four-person puppet company called The Elementals, and we would go and do comedy clubs and places where people were not seeing puppetry. And we had a guy who danced. It was like a, a fully 
realized little demon that uh, the three of us performed and he had legs, arms and head and everything and we wow. danced we did this thing to a James Brown song and people weren't used to seeing that either and that just kind of mushroomed out of that and kept doing shows we then merged with a group called Cuckoo Handler. We became a show called Uncle Jimmy's Dirty Basement, which was like a puppet rock musical. I was Uncle Jimmy trapped in his basement. And we had this whole thing. We ran the show for a few years. I say I've heard of that one. Yeah. yeah. We did that, and um, kind of out of the ashes of that, because Tom was in that. I the had director. Yeah, and co-writer. Uh, I had, s we had invested so much in Uncle Jimmy's that, and then when it didn't really go, through a weird series of events. I was just kind of done with it. Um, and then uh, Ellie Covan at Dixon Place, I, I think I ran into her on the street, and she asked me to, uh, if she could commission me to do a show. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was like, I'm not really, it, it hurts too much, I can't do <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that again, you know? And I thought about it for a while, and I woke up the next morning and I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what we can do. Nice. And I talked to Tom if he would help me out and direct. And we did a show called Lunatic Cunning, which was a bunch of the smaller individual puppet pieces that I would do by myself. But then we kind of wove a, a through line through them, an autobiographical, uh, something that wasn't too um, the therapy-based. <laughs> uh, and people responded to that very highly. And it was really interesting to work on that with Tom and see how we scripted it and made it fit and, and saw the connections between the the, the different pieces that we kind of threw in there. And out of that, and the skill set and the trick bag that we got from there, uh, I approached Tom about doing a really straightforward, let's sit down and write a crazy script that we don't have any puppets for. Because usually be like, this puppet works there, we'll do this, and that becomes this thing. Kind of, you know, devised. Right. And puppets make the show, and this time that's how the I was show working mostly. Requested up. the puppets exactly because nice. usually there was no time, there was no money, and it's like, oh, I've got this puppet. Then okay, it's not a he's not the mayor; it's a clown, or you know, whatever. This means like a longer development process, then, right? Yeah, yeah, um, and a lot of uh, hands-on building of different puppets. So there's there's so many different puppet styles mm. that appear on stage. Is that uh, was that by design in the in the sense of like let's go to all these different things because we can and that's really fun or was it more like well Sam should be this way and the mayor should be this way and the mm -hmm. tongue should be this way is it uh, I guess uh, what what comes first like yeah. I want to make this kind of puppet or this role desires this kind of puppet yeah it's really hard to answer that because the process was um it kind of it, it fed back into itself as we started to write things. And if I got an idea, I had the one of the kernel ideas was the alien harp in the windows of the Flatiron Building mm -hmm. to stop a storm. After Sandy happened, I heard a thing on NPR where someone was talking about flood myths, what myths actually are based in truth, and what myths are you know did that flood really happen? Did the did Moses really part the sea? Did all of those things? Some happened. Some may have not happened. But what does the flood myth mean? Uh, and I was like, okay, there's something there. Right. Storm. I always wanted to do something with the Flatiron Building. Uh, and that was there before the storm thing happened. And then the Aeolian Harp connection, I can't even remember how that happened. <laughs> uh, but then 
thinking about what I could do by myself. We have the freestanding Wiley, which is a great thing puppet-wise because obviously he can stand and look like he's present when I don't have to hold on to him. Uh, and then there are some conventions of rolling uh, characters on top of the decks, like the Adminion or the Mayor um, or Clara. Um, so those became necessity because of single performer. And then we kind of figured out how to do it as we wrote what each character needed to do. So Mom, we knew that we wanted her to be in a device uh, that she wasn't alive anymore, but her presence was still there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was thinking a, a small shadow screen, something really portable and small, so we could then echo to the, the bigger shadow screens. Um, and hopefully people would forget that that's really a shadow screen and it's more like a puppet thing that happens <laughs> on stage. Yeah, it feels that way. And so playing with those sorts of echoes of technique um, and also thinking about what kind of information we need to get to the audience when, uh, how to get transitions, because we can do a lot. I mean, we can do a whole bar scene with that really rudimentary right. shadow puppet and people are more than willing to fill in the blanks. You put in a little crowd noise, you know, you have like a, a flip over beer bottle and a sign that says bar. You know. And you're there, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. You don't need anything else beyond that. So we've always really liked that and uh, there was a constant challenge of what do we illustrate, what do we not illustrate? Does the spore door happen? Do we actually build that? Was that a shadow thing? And as we thought about it, I, I it's like you have to see you have to see the spores hit me. That has to happen. Yeah, you can't get it on you can't get it on the overheads. It's too it's a little too cold. And then, uh, so back to the puppet design. And then there was things like with Sam. It's just a technique that I've always liked. And Sam was in my shop for a long time because I had designed him in a couple of different ways. He was supposed to look like an like we they had transplanted an arm. Uh, okay. And so his 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 hand would be the head and the arm would be stuck into a pedestal and there would be, the original designs are that there are veins and stuff and you could see them pulsing and the oh, arm, wow, the arm cool. is alive and it's like this whole bio unit and the head is obviously a brain and a dolphin cortex attached into this thing. And so I started to build that and like I said before, the timeline was not supporting that sort of level of, uh, and it got too illustrative and this is pretty much unfinished. That's just bare foam, some hot glue patterning. But given who the character is, actually, yeah. that, that feels like that's the right yeah the look. Like yeah, it, he's not he he's not some sort of dragon or something that yeah. should have fully functional scales and like yeah. look like he's shimmering. It's it's a bio. What did you call him? Like a a biomechanical? You called him something in the talkback. Sentient bio mainframe. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, who's gonna? You're not gonna actually give it skin, <laughs> are you? No, 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 yeah, no, no. Great. Sam is done. <laughs> no, there. I I work for. I build puppets. Uh, for you know, for for Henson, for uh, professional companies, and among the builders that that are there, there's usually a phase where it's unfinished, and you can see. You know, because I went to art school, I'm a sculptor, and there are a lot of things that I'm constantly in dialogue with the materials. When you do it as a job, you know what your endpoint is going to be because usually somebody else has designed it or you're working for a client, you know you have to go to this certain point. But right. sometimes the exciting thing is when you get to a point where 
it's the bare foam underneath what's going to cover it and you're like oh this looks so much better than what it's going to be this is what it should be yeah. yeah so it's like in a way like one of my painting teachers used to always say is that you know your painting is done when you're sitting there and you decide i have one more thing i'm going to change don't ever do that change wow yeah it's like because if you think there's only one more thing to change you're about to destroy your painting and I've, I've, I've found that to be true in, in most part, and it's not something you could put into practice when you're working as a professional fabricator or a builder or something right. like that, because... But when you're building your own puppets yeah, for your own Yeah, it's something to show, pay attention yeah. to, yeah. Wow, that's really cool advice. I'd never heard that. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's a nice thing. It was yeah. always like, because he was a very, but he was a very finished, super finished artist. I mean, like photorealistic, perfect, everything down to the last thing was beautiful but then you could see him do these really gestural free amazing life drawings you know it was a guy who had a lot of different angles that fed into this one really focused thing the uh, I want to touch on one more thing uh, you mentioned that sure. you had a little bit of an inspiration from uh, hearing about uh, the flood myths post Sandy yeah and uh, we are uh, seeing this piece that has a lot of echoes of um, global uh, climate catastrophe mm. and this is uh, what is today the 26th of September or 25th of September yeah, and like uh, we are you know post Harvey post Irma yeah um, and Puerto Rico still doesn't have power and won't for the next several months so yeah. uh, it's obviously you didn't write this piece to be performed in this time but mm. uh, we're, we're living in in many ways in that post-apocalyptic idea that you you introduced into the Flatiron Hex, how are you finding it resonating with audiences and, and where do you see this piece fitting into the, the present moment? Uh, well, aside from being astounded by the, co the coincidences that happen with this show, Tom and I, I, I say that the show is haunted because we've, we've created this thing that now it tells, now it's telling us stuff that, that it wants to have happen, which right. is usually a good sign. Uh, and it's what excites me about doing this kind of work. Uh, I'm not really a, one of those pedantic, I want to get a message out to the world. Uh, I'm mostly an entertainer. Uh, I really have a great respect for people who can do that sort of thing. It's just not my aesthetic. Uh, when I thought about the mythology, that's where I found that I had a connection to uh, that. Um, and the hardest thing to do is to come out and, get, and say, Global warming is bad, you guys. You know, <laughs> doesn't work on stage. No, and but a noir puppet show, yeah. uh, where a huge storm is approaching New York, that works. Yeah, and and uh, when we were crafting the beginning of it, the storm to me, honestly, was uh, almost a secondary concern to drive the action. The primary concern was showing someone who is in their job. Uh, with a lot of responsibility that has been doing it for so long that they screw up, something really major mm -hmm. they screw up. And because we, s we build the world so his responsibilities are bigger than he's even thinking of that day, and we, we up the stakes in a very uh, specific build to a certain point to where um, he fails, uh, that was really the mechanics that we were thinking about. And then the storm part was how it, it tied everything together because we could we can relate to the storm we don't have to illustrate the storm sounds of storm everybody gets viscerally 
Uh, and the more we worked with it, the more I would go out and record with Tom, and he would come up with these amazing background sounds, lightning, thunder sounds. This is like my favorite thing in the whole world, like to be in a show with like big cracks of lightning or thunder and stuff. Um, so really for me, it's when I enjoyed that sort of thing in the theater, uh, now it, it's almost come full circle. Well, it has come full circle. We tried and tried and tried to remount it. We had this opportunity to do it here, thanks to Basil and everybody at here. Um, and I really had no conscious thoughts at all that September was hurricane season. Right. It's not like we were like, you know what, this would be perfect to be, uh, you know, because there's going to be a bunch of hurricanes and it's going to be crazy and weird. Well, and how could you have known? It'd be like two of the most, like, this yeah. never happened in the United States. They have and it was when we opened. It was in, in the month, yeah. It was in the first week. So people were here saying, obviously, people know that we didn't just write this and rehearse it in the day before the... But they're, they're like, yeah. this is eerily prescient. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I just also wanted you to uh, echo real quick something that you said in the talk back that I was uh, present for. Mm. Um, you, it, because it's something that I feel in my work, personally. Yeah. Uh, you said you made the piece that you wanted to see. Yep. Uh, talk, can you just talk a little bit more about like why you feel that is... Uh, how, how did... Wh what of this is what you wanted to see and, and how do you... How does that idea of making what you want to see on stage help to yeah. drive what you make? Yeah. I have, I had seen a few things that other artists had done, both in puppetry and in theater. I'm a huge Bill Irwin fan, David uh, Shiner fan. Um, if you're not a Bill Irwin fan, <laughs> you haven't seen Bill Irwin. I just, you know, I, and when I see Bill Irwin, and especially when he works with David, uh, there's a, a thing. It's it's hard to quantify. First of all, they're technically proficient. What they're doing is physically, really demanding. A lot of people don't realize how physically demanding it is what they're doing and how technically demanding it is. And when we were formulating the rules, we said, okay, I want, I want this to be the hardest show I've ever performed, but I don't want it to be for the wrong reason. I want it to be, I want everything to be, I, I don't want to ever have a rest point. Okay, I have one rest point in the whole show. Um, and that, that's kind of fun because um, I know that the audience can see me doing things. And one of my favorite things is watching, you know, if you go to Cirque du Soleil, you can see there's sometimes there's background action, there's people carrying things through, there's always this kind of through line. They have, they're very technically proficient. Uh, I love a lot of what, like early Cirque du Soleil, it's just like they found this aesthetic. They were so technically proficient, so great at so many great things. And the clowning was good. And I worked with Blue Man back in the day and watched how their process worked. And it just seemed like I was at a place where I, the shows I was making weren't the shows that uh, I wanted people walking out of the theater having seen. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so there, was good, there were good things happening, but I wasn't, the storytelling wasn't as uh, efficient. And so I worked really hard and I have a lot of help um, thinking about how we can tell the story in a way that is compelling and that we can get, we can load in a bunch of weird ideas while using some really traditional things and symbols that people relate to. Uh, you know, we're not shooting lasers or doing anything like that. <laughs> it's all very low tech. Uh, and um, I'm kind of getting off track, but a lot of people respond to uh, video game aesthetic. 
uh, comic book aesthetic, partially because of the, the, the insert to the program. Um, but yeah, if sitting down and going like, I want to be, it, it needs to be beyond my capabilities when we write it. So you, your capabilities have to catch up to it. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah, and so that's why I've been training for the last, well, I've been in tra training since January uh, because the last time I did the show, every night I'd just be so completely physically wrecked that I wouldn't even, you know, I couldn't really concentrate on what, and I'd try to rebuild for the next day. Now I have the stamina where I can concentrate, think about things, and I, I'm not being, like, broken down by my <laughs> inability to breathe about two scenes wow. into the show. So that's another thing. It's kind of transformative for me. Um, uh, it's almost at the point where uh, it's not easy, definitely, but I'm in a place where um, I like people seeing me do traffic. I right. think having different things to focus on is compelling for people. And uh, I, I barely get to observe audience very much in this show. Usually I get to observe a lot more. But uh, there are only like two or three segments where, I, where I'm down here. I can see people, but I can't really afford even looking at anyone then because that puppet is really hard to manipulate. <laughs> uh, so I'm just rambling on now. But um, No, not at all. And the intimacy of the space, like me sitting here, I'd never sit here. So now that I'm sitting here looking at this and yeah, going, we're sitting like, in the front row. Jesus, I'm like <laughs> I'm Yo, yeah, seven feet away from you're you. Very, very close to us. Yeah, and then if I'm, when when that happens, right. Well, the other <laughs> thing was blood. Uh, making uh, something very primal, uh, very uh, it's overused, it's underused, it has this thing. Blood still does what it does. Right. Especially on stage because people know that it's getting on your clothes. You know, everybody's feet go like this when it happens. The, the, the students were picking up their stuff <laughs> and like getting out of the way. It was like, and you well, were really close to us and we're seeing it on you. Yeah. Which is, like you said, very primal. <laughs> yeah. And I think, because we both did a lot of research on storytelling, on presentational techniques, um, how to grab people. And blood is one of those things that made sense with the story. Uh, part of our story building was when he does the viral extraction at the beginning, it needs to be gross. There needs right. to be a gross out thing that looks like it's a physically weird thing. Uh, because my section of that was that in shamanism, um, I'm rambling again, but uh, <laughs> anthropologists would go and visit shamans, say in northwest coast Alaska or somewhere, and they would inculcate themselves into the tribe. They would s learn some of the language, and they would s maybe sometimes get to hang out with the shaman. Now, since they were educated from a different way of doing things, uh, they would see that the shaman was doing a magic trick by loading a worm or something in their mouth underneath the mask or something while doing a big thing. It's basically stage magic. And then doing a big production of sucking out the virus or whatever the sickness was from the patient. Right, and then reveal, then there's the... Yeah, so the big the, reveal. And then the prestiges, they yeah. show the... Yeah. yeah, so there's the whole, there are soul catchers at the American Museum of Natural History. There's a bunch of them, Northwest Coast shaman, uh, they carve them out of bone. Uh, and my friend, I have a friend who's a magician, and he, he did psychic surgery on me a few times as a sleight of <laughs> hand. And... It was one of those things. We need to do a viral extraction of the thing, and it needs to be a gross-out gag. How do we do that? Uh, but what, uh, to back up a little bit, uh, the anthropologist would then find that the patient would get better. Yeah. 
And the interesting thing for me about shamanism in that context is that beyond just the placebo effect is that the, the shaman knew that they were tricking, but they also knew that the trick would work without any knowledge of what placebo effect meant. So it was, it was not either or, or it was both. Yeah. So the healing came from the ritual and the magic and the stuff like that. And because it was so big and the patient was so, you know, invested in what was happening, it didn't matter that it was just a trick. And maybe sometimes it wasn't just a trick. They, you know, they, you, they couldn't often tell. And that was super intriguing to me of like, what, would, what are people going to think when I'm doing that? They're like, oh, it's a sleight of hand trick. And that's fine. That's totally fine. But it's just as a gross out, like from this very cold, weird, what am I looking at this? And then all of a sudden I'm puking out this thing. <laughs> you know, hopefully that would grab them as like, oh, ah, it, it ah. does. It gives you, I mean, like if anybody is thinking at the beginning, like, oh, puppets, what puppets? Yeah. Well, yeah, this guy's also, you know puking up some sort of thing <laughs> that he just sucked out of the puppet. So what now? Yeah. What is that puppet to you at the moment? Yeah, um, yeah no, that's, that's really fascinating. I love all that. Um, thank you very much for hanging out to Thank you. I hope it didn't stuff. blab too long. No, no, no. It's great. It's excellent. Um, we are at here. Show runs through... This Saturday evening, yep. Oh, it's only through this Saturday. Yep. Uh, let's get this up real quick. And uh, more tickets and more information can be found at... Here.org, yeah. Or yeah. at theflatironhex.com. You do have a personal website. Perfect. We do indeed, okay. yep. Great. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, James, for hanging out after the show to chat. You can catch The Flatiron Hex at Here Art Center, 145 6th Avenue in Manhattan, for just three more performances from the posting of this episode through September 30th, 2017. Head to here.org for a link to tickets and more information. Thanks to you for listening into the podcast. If you dig it, please give it a like on Facebook, facebook.com slash go see a show. Follow at go see a show on Twitter and rate or comment on the show's Apple Podcasts page. Until next time, go see a show. Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, that was great. Yeah.